0: This podcast includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. It may not be suitable for all listeners.
1: So one thing that I want to do is pick up the color. Okay, I'm just trying to figure out what color when he uses a base. Sorry, it's taking me a
0: minute. This is Maria Farmer. She's standing in front of a large wooden easel in her living room slash art studio. The room is open and airy, flooded with light from floor-to-ceiling windows that overlook a beautiful lake out front.
1: So we're in my studio. Um, it's a new studio for me. It's very well-lit, which is mm-hmm. such a treat. And so I'm taking advantage of that um, for a couple reasons. One thing for this series, I really want it to be vibrant.
0: Maria is working with a new set of soft pastels, thumbing through a wooden box for the perfect base color to use in a portrait that she's drawing.
1: I want to draw people's attention to it. And I also feel like there's a lot of strength and power in this, you know, being very colorful.
0: Once on the path to a promising art career, only in recent years has Maria been able to stand before an easel again.
1: It's just I'm trying to do all these different primaries. Maybe I'll just do green again.
0: The portrait she's working on is part of a series. On the wall next to her are seven others that make up what she's calling the Survivor's Project. Seven portraits, all different women, each one of them with piercing eyes set on top of bright, vibrant hues.
1: There's turquoise, there's pink, there's purple, there's yellow, there's blue, there's green and orange. And so that's um, each, each color behind the girl represents her.
0: Each one of the women survivors of Jeffrey Epstein.
1: On the left is Sarah, and then you have Virginia, and then Michelle. I want these girls to be honored individually. I wanted it to portray how beautiful these women are and how strong they are.
0: But there is one portrait that's missing. Maria's.
1: I'm going to be a blank sheet of paper in mine.
0: She says she too is a survivor of Jeffrey Epstein. But there's a reason why she'll simply be a blank canvas.
1: I am just a blank sheet of paper, according to the U.S. government and the FBI, and I have felt like a blank sheet of paper for 24 years. That's how I feel. I feel invisible.
0: That's because well before authorities in Florida would investigate Jeffrey Epstein and his system designed to bring him underage girls, Maria Farmer says she tried to sound the alarm.
1: If the FBI had listened to me in 1996 when I called them and gave them all the details about the perpetrators and their crimes up to that point, if they had listened at all and cared, none of the women would have been harmed if the FBI had done their job.
0: A decade before more than a dozen young girls and women in Palm Beach would share their stories of abuse at Epstein's mansion Maria Farmer would speak up first. She says she told the NYPD and the FBI about Jeffrey Epstein, who she says wedged himself into her life, into her career, even into her family.
2: Maria told me that he was a very generous person who liked to help academically gifted students. And he also was very interested in furthering her
3: art career. He definitely was manipulating us.
0: And she alleges that Epstein, along with his one-time girlfriend, Galen Maxwell, would take advantage of her.
1: She sold it to me. I mean, like hook, line, and sinker. I thought this woman really cared.
0: And even when she spoke up, Maria says nothing happened.
1: I gave them everything they needed, all the bad actors. The FBI has known about this. And that's why when I look at those other girls, they were ruined too. And I can see it. We're all broken.
0: From ABC News, I'm Mark Remillard. And this is Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. Chapter 2, I Tried to Warn You. So, Carlos, this. Um,
1: so, uh, where am I going? <laughs>
0: I'll talk to you in a second.
1: Jim, am I just sitting? Yes. Yeah, okay.
0: It's now September 2019, and Maria Farmer has spent 18 hours in a car to be here in New York City.
3: Now, um,
1: absolutely.
0: So you're just going to look at me, okay? And try to ignore the fact. That She's you're driven right, with two close friends, as well as ABC News senior producer and our lead reporter James Hill, all the way from Kentucky. Maria had to drive the 1,200 miles to get here because a brain tumor prevents her from flying. Sure.
1: Okay, my name is Maria Farmer.
0: She's here in New York, where she lived 25 years ago, to tell us about how she came to meet Jeffrey Epstein. At the time, she says she was in her mid-20s, pursuing her dreams of becoming an artist, something her mother, Janice Swain, says Maria had wanted since she was a child.
2: Maria was born to be an artist. She was coloring pictures in her on her crib sheets when she was just a baby by the time she was 2 years old she was drawing very recognizable characters by the time she was 3 years old she had her own easel and table and art room
0: and just as much as maria wanted to be an artist she wanted to be one in new york she also
2: went to new york when she was about 5 and decided right then that she would grow up to be an artist and live in New York.
1: Actually, I have my journal over there that says, when I um, when I grow up, I have the potential to be a great artist. And I, I wrote that when I was in the third grade. So I also put, when I grow up, I would like to move to New York and study painting.
0: Maria would get that chance in 1993, after she heard about a graduate program in New York to study art.
1: I just knew I was going to go there and study painting. And so I just told everyone I'd gotten into graduate school and I went there so nobody would be worried. And I moved there with $14.
0: Soon, she was living in the heart of New York City.
1: Yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I lived on Barrow Street in Greenwich Village. I was so proud of it. I'd like swing my keys walking up to the stoop. I wanted everyone to know I live here.
0: And she says she would spend a lot of time in museums
1: was just about being near the museums and being near all these great artists and learning from them and being able to study with them and being able to, oh my gosh, study from these great paintings. In most cities you can't go and just look at a Degas or, you know, a Vermeer and then go home and, and, and implement that. And that city had so much energy. In the arts back then especially, Manhattan was really energetic.
0: She'd eventually come to get the scholarship she'd need to attend the New York Academy of Art.
1: It was just her dream was being
2: realized when she was able to attend the Academy. She did want
0: to go to New York more than anywhere else. It was all coming together for Maria. She had the talent and she was getting the education and the support that she needed. The one thing she didn't have was money. With a rigorous academic schedule and multiple jobs, Maria was burning the candle at both ends.
1: Pretty much painted 12 hours a day, and then I worked all these side jobs.
0: But by 1995, after two years at the Academy, her art career was picking up steam, and success came quickly.
1: I was selling my paintings for over 20000 out of my studio. Nothing was going to stop me. I just knew I was going to be an art star, and everyone knew it around me. It was really strange.
0: Her hard work and round-the-clock painting was building toward one pivotal event, her thesis show. For a whole year, she'd been working on three paintings as part of a series based on Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. And in May 1995, she debuted them in an art show set up by the New York Academy of Art. And Maria's work was a hit.
1: All three of my paintings sold the night of the opening. People just walking by came in. A guy who was um, a director from Los Angeles, he loved it, he bought one. Another guy was German and he bought two paintings and they were at $12,000 apiece.
0: It was shaping up to be an incredible evening for the young artist. But little did she know, it would also be a life-changing event. Because it was during this art show that she says she was introduced to a man and a woman whom she was told were important patrons in the art world.
1: He looked kind of distinguished because he had gray hair. And he always had this smirk, like he knew something that the other people didn't know. So he was always wearing this little smirk, but not, not in a really um, intimidating way or a rude way. It was almost like inviting you to ask him, what are you thinking about right now? And he went to shake my hand and he said, you're so talented. I love your painting. But here's the thing. You're going to give us a discount because we're not going to pay full price, but we're going to make it up
0: to you. That man was Jeffrey Epstein, and the woman, Farmer says it was socialite, Ghislaine Maxwell.
1: Ghislaine Maxwell, she always had very short hair. She had a style that was sort of Upper East Side, flashy, um, tassels. She had kind of an androgynous look. She didn't wear a lot of makeup. She wasn't beautiful. But she had this way of charming everyone with her words and her voice.
0: You mentioned the, the way she talked, the, the Queen's English. You said right. Yes, yeah, she had the Queen's very English. Very elegant. I mean, she very eloquent.
1: A, right. Extraordinarily uh, um, well educated.
0: Maria says she would end up taking back one of the paintings she previously sold to instead sell it to Epstein for half the price. It's a powerful piece. The viewer is looking through a doorway into a room with deep shadows in the foreground and illuminating light in the background. The doorway makes almost a frame within a frame. In the background, there's a woman in a purple dress, lost in thought on an antique couch.
1: So that was me sitting there um, in a contemplative manner, (laughs) lying there on the sofa. And I'm fully clothed. I'm in the back, tiny on the sofa, but I'm, you know, a real size. But the viewer sees me as small.
0: There's a red carpet that rolls across the floor to a man standing in the foreground. A man entering through the doorway. His back is to you, and he's wearing nothing but white boxers. You can't see his face.
1: And it's just an imaginary man.
0: But you can see that he's leering at the woman as she lies on the couch. Not long after the art show, Maria received a call. It was Epstein on the line, and he said that he had a job for her.
1: And he said to me, Maria, meet me tomorrow morning at the office, and I'll explain the job to you. I'm thrilled, right? I think, oh, wow, this is great.
0: So the next morning, Maria made her way here. I'm standing on the corner of 50th Street and Madison Avenue in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And this is where Jeffrey Epstein had his offices at 457 Madison Avenue, a beautiful, historic stone building. This is the same building as the historic Hemsley Palace and the Villard Houses, and it is directly across from one of the most regal churches in all of New York City, St. Patrick's Cathedral.
1: I get all the way up there, and the office staff seem really nice. It seemed like a real office. You know, people are answering phones. There were women in there typing, and people all jovial and. Smiling at me, and they all knew my name. And I walk in, and he's like, come on in.
0: Despite Maria meeting Epstein in some of the most coveted office space in midtown Manhattan, Epstein's attire is laid back.
1: He opens the door. He's like wearing sweats and like a button-down or something, not at all dressed up. And I'm thinking, this guy is so casual.
0: He told her he had a job for her, that he wanted her to acquire art for him.
1: I find him the best deal I can on the best art. Well, I'm thinking, this is fabulous. I can help out my friends who are artists. And I've met a lot of really great artists recently. I can take their work and bring it to Jeffrey, and then it'll help them, right? I just thought, great, I'm going to make $1,000 a month. And I thought I was going to actually be paid and all that good stuff.
0: For Maria, the job sounded perfect. And it sounded like a great opportunity when her mother, Janice, heard about it as well.
2: I didn't think of her job as unusual because I thought that if they had a lot of money and a lot of houses, they probably didn't have time to
0: purchase their own art. Epstein came across as friendly and accessible. In fact, he'd often spend time speaking on the phone with Janice, telling her about how happy he was with Maria's work.
2: It was a very casual conversation. It didn't really lead anywhere, and he didn't have any questions for me or anything. He simply was telling me that Maria was doing a great job.
0: He talked about Maria's talents and how he wanted the best for her.
2: He thought she was
0: extremely talented, and he hoped to be able to help her with her career. As Janice learned more about Epstein, she was left with the impression that he was nothing more than a very wealthy and charitable man.
2: Maria told me that he was uh, a very generous person who liked to help academically gifted students. And he also was very interested in her, in furthering her art
0: career. But it didn't take long for Maria to begin to see cracks in Epstein's facade.
1: I was like third day on the job and I was already getting anxious because he had acquired this painting and he had not paid for it.
0: And Maria says the artist was getting frustrated.
1: And the guy was really giving me a hard time. And I also just really wanted him to get his money. He had no food. And Jeffrey was like, don't you worry about it. I'll pay him. Don't you worry about it.
0: It wouldn't be the only time that Maria says that artists that she had acquired paintings from were not paid.
1: The job was burdensome. I think there were a lot of people that I lost. I lost their respect and their friendship. And these are people that I really cared about because Jeffrey wouldn't
0: pay them. She wanted to call it quits, but Epstein convinced her to stay.
1: As soon as I found out they weren't getting paid, I, I, I called him to quit. And he said, no, 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 don't quit. Don't quit, Maria. I've got an idea. I'm going to do something for you. You're going to actually... Not even really work. I mean, you're just barely going to be working. You're going to be at my desk. I mean, at a desk at the front, just manning the door.
0: Epstein meant the front door of his palatial home on East 71st Street. A very gorgeous block here on the east side of Manhattan, tucked right between Madison Avenue and the east side of Central Park, Fifth Avenue. And this is the home where Jeffrey Epstein used to live. And this is supposedly the largest private residence in Manhattan. To give you a sense of the size, prior to becoming a residence, it was a schoolhouse. It's got to be four or five stories tall. Each story is maybe 15, 20 feet tall. Incredible stonework on the front that decorate the front of the building. This huge wooden door and on the side in the stonework in brass, the letters J-E. And it was here where Maria came to work, sitting at a desk, signing in visitors to Epstein's home.
1: Okay, so you walk in the, into the building, and there's this long, long, long hallway. Very long, actually. Like, longer than most apartments in New York would ever be. So I'd say it's like 2,000 square feet of hall.
0: At the end of the hallway was a desk where Maria sat.
1: On the right was this big white desk where I would sit and just with a ledger and sign people in. There was no way for anyone to enter except through that front door.
0: Maria says Epstein told her it would be an easy gig. He told her she could even draw while she worked. But in reality, there were constantly people coming and going, and every one of them had to sign the ledger. And she quickly noticed some odd things about her employer's home.
1: When I first started working for Jeffrey Epstein at the manning the door, um, the first day there, he wanted me to get a little tour. And so he showed me, he was very (laughs) proud of this, that within the limestone lining the hallway... You know, it's like dug out inside and there were pinhole cameras everywhere. And he would point them out to me. And he said, do you see that? Like, well, we're going to be able to watch you right here. There's a pinhole camera. Oh, there's another one. And I thought that was odd. Why are you pointing them out to me? I said, well, where does all this go? And he said, well, it's right there. Let me take you in the room. And so there's like a hidden doorway going back out the door and it's to the left. And he had, he opened that room and he said it was leaded and there were all these cameras in there. Um televisions, like actual old TVs, right, stacked up like this. And there were like four or five men in there, and they were working constantly.
0: Pinhole cameras observing everything that went on inside Jeffrey Epstein's home. Everything.
1: At this point, when I'm in the security room, I realize, well, I won't be going to the bathroom here. I won't lie down for a nap because, look, there's the bed upstairs, the other bed, the toilet, the bathroom, the shower. It's all on these screens, these very private moments people should have are on these screens.
0: Maria asked Epstein, why?
1: I said, why are you doing this? Why are you recording? There's no one even here. And he said, I just keep it all. I just record it and I keep it. That was weird. You know, I thought that was strange. But again, not quite that strange. Like maybe he's just paranoid.
0: But there were strange things about Epstein as well. Maria says he was reclusive, and for a man of such wealth, he never seemed to be working.
1: At one point, I told Jeffrey, I would really like to go upstairs to see where you are all day. And what are you doing all day? What's going on at this place? It was weird. This man was never working. And it just baffled me. Like, how's he earning all this money? Right? So he said, oh, well, I have to get three, at least three massages a day. And I do it up here. And I'm like, who gets massaged all day? And he said, well, I work while I'm doing it. It's just, I'm just there most of the day.
0: At the time, Maria says she was under the impression that Epstein was a financial manager. But it seems strange that he didn't appear to have many clients.
1: I said, you're a financial manager. You know, I have friends that are financial managers that are billionaires. And they have a lot of clients. And he said, no, I have one client. (laughs) I only need one client, and my client is a billionaire, and his name is Les Wexner.
0: Billionaire Les Wexner, the founder and CEO of L Brands, a retail giant that owns brands like Victoria's Secret and Bath & Body Works. But Epstein's work habits weren't the only strange thing that Maria noticed in the home. In a lawsuit filed in federal court against Jeffrey Epstein's estate, Maria says that one day she was working the front desk at Epstein's home when she saw something that horrified her.
1: One day I saw a little girl in her uniform walking down the stairs, crying.
0: Maria says that the young girl had been upstairs with Epstein, and she came down bawling.
1: And I was so uncomfortable that I asked Elan, what in the heck is going on? And she said, Maria, she didn't get the audition, okay? She's just going to have to learn to deal with it. The modeling world's tough. She needs to toughen
0: up. In her lawsuit, Maria says Maxwell told her that she and Epstein were model scouts and that they were auditioning models for Victoria's Secret.
1: And she said, well, Maria, I have to do this all day long. It's my job. I work for Les Wexner and I'm picking out the Victoria's Secret models. She made absolute, I mean, that was 100%. She made it clear. She worked for Les Wexner. Jeffrey worked for Les Wexner. And they were just acquiring models for Victoria's Secret. I need the new box. That was her word.
0: In Maria's lawsuit, she says seeing young girls around Epstein's home became a regular occurrence. Young girls coming in, signing the ledger, and going upstairs.
1: But I remember sometimes thinking, couldn't they have less auditions? You know, it's just so annoying. They have so many. And on a typical day, you would have between three and eight. Why would I not believe it? I I don't know anything about the way the companies run.
0: And as strange as all this was, it was 1995. Jeffrey Epstein's sexual abuse wouldn't be publicly known for years to come. ABC News reached out to L Brands to ask if Epstein and Maxwell had in fact ever been model scouts for the company, but representatives haven't provided a response. But last year, L Brands told Business Insider that it had hired an outside law firm to review Jeffrey Epstein's relationship with the company, adding that it did not believe Epstein was ever employed by L Brands or served as an authorized representative. During her time working for Epstein, Maria says she'd come to know Maxwell and Epstein. And in her lawsuit against Epstein's estate, she says that Epstein and Maxwell were inquisitive, They'd ask her questions about her family.
1: And I remember one day Gillan saying, she was like playing with my hair, making me feel special. And she asked me about my family. And I said, well, actually, I have the most amazing sister in the world. And of course, I began bragging about her because I'm so proud of her.
0: Maria says at one point, she showed a picture of her younger sister to Epstein. And after seeing it, he insisted that Maria's sister come to New York for a visit. Maria's younger sister is Annie Farmer, who was 16 at the time and lived in Arizona.
3: What I understood was that Maria had a very wealthy boss, was sort of how I thought of it at the time, who you know she was working for, who um, was sort of larger than life. He had uh, a mansion and he was always flying all over the
0: world. Epstein's offer to bring Annie out to New York seemed generous. Maria had been missing her sister and was excited to see her. And what seemed even more generous was that Epstein had been offering to help Annie get into college.
3: In December of 1995, I learned that Jeffrey Epstein was interested in buying me a ticket to come out to visit. And I hadn't seen Maria at that point in almost a year. And so I was really excited just to be able to go visit her. But I also knew because Maria had, had let me know that he was, he was interested in meeting me and that he had said he might want to help me with school. So I really believed that these people wanted to help my
1: sister with her education. I explained that she's incredibly intelligent, and I was led to believe that they wanted to educate her.
0: Maria says Epstein even told her mother that he and Maxwell were married, something that was untrue and that Maria believes was meant to make her mother feel more comfortable.
1: Jeffrey always spoke so highly of her as his wife. Made my mom feel very safe that this man and this woman are married. They never got to have children. This was another ploy. And so they really wanted to help
3: other people's children.
0: Epstein would purchase tickets, and soon Annie was on a plane to New York City.
3: I believe my mom did drop me off at the airport. It was after, after Christmas that year of um, 1995.
0: Today, Annie Farmer is a psychologist in Texas, but 24 years ago, she was a high school student excited to see her big sister in New York.
3: I was just really excited to go on this trip to New York, and um, it really lived up to my expectations for the most part. We got to you know, go to theater productions, and um, I remember shopping for a prom dress and going to the flea market and just thinking like New York was this magical place.
0: Annie didn't know much about Maria's boss at the time and recalls being surprised at how casual he was.
3: Just from what I'd heard about his wealth and his, you know, importance, I pictured that he would be, you know, wearing a suit and um, but of course he was always dressed really casually. Like if it wasn't sweatpants, it might as well have been sweatpants. You know, he did a good job of um, I think presenting himself in a way for a teenage girl that would, you know, just seem like very um It was like Daddy Warbucks. It was like a dream, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Old Fonzie.
0: In fact, that was their nickname for Epstein, Old Fonzie.
3: I remember he seemed really interested in me and asking me questions about my future and what I wanted and, you know, what kind of schools I was considering applying to. And he brought up the fact that he thought it'd be beneficial to me to go on some kind of international trip as a way of um, making myself a more appealing candidate for getting into college.
0: And like Maria, Annie didn't find Epstein's generosity strange.
3: I felt very lucky, but I also, I think the context of Maria's experience in New York and the fact that she always seemed to, you know, in New York you, you see famous people or, you know, these kind of wild things happen that in, in the world I was living in seemed completely, you know, um, implausible.
0: Epstein would send the two of them to see The Phantom of the Opera. He even arranged for a driver to pick them up and take them to the show. Annie would later write in her journal that it was the highlight of her trip. But while Epstein on the surface seemed nothing more than Maria's kind and generous boss, for Annie, things would change quickly.
3: There was one other interaction with him during the trip, and that was when he invited Maria and I to go to the movies. Uh, it was just the three of us, and we went to go see the movie 12 Monkeys.
0: Epstein, 42 years old at the time, took Annie and Maria to the movies. And to Annie's surprise, when they arrived in the theater, he sat in between the two of them.
3: And then, um, we're sitting there watching the movie, and he just sort of, like, put his hand out, like, you know, for, for me to hold his hand. And um, I definitely had a reaction to that, but I also just kind of went along with it and I remember my hand being you know kind of sweaty because I was like very nervous about what why he was doing that and you know the whole time was just I kind of disconnected from watching the movie because I was like what did this is very odd. Why would he be wanting to hold my hand? Maybe maybe he's thinking of me. Maybe this is a fatherly gesture. Then he sort of, you know, kind of rubbed my arm, and he would rub my foot and rub my leg a little. But what I noted is that if Maria would was over look there. over um, or would, you know, kind of engage with him or he would talk to her, then he would let go. And so that was troubling to me because, of course, it made me realize that it, like, yeah, that he didn't want her to know.
0: Annie sat quietly through the movie, worried that if she did say anything, she could ruin things for her sister.
3: I didn't talk to her about it at all. I really didn't want to upset her, and I also, I knew it would create problems for her. I thought that it could jeopardize her, um, her career or her, you know, her working for him.
0: So Annie kept it to herself. She didn't tell her sister and she didn't tell her mom when she returned home from New York. She'd write about it in her journal, but says that soon she even started doubting her interpretation of events.
3: And I also, because I was doubting myself, I think, well, I don't want to say anything that would solely his reputation if, if maybe I'm just totally reading this the wrong way. And so it's probably better if I just don't, if I don't say anything.
0: And all the while, Maria would continue to work for Epstein, none the wiser. But it wouldn't be long after that, that she, too, would see Epstein's other side.
3: Some folks don't stop searching
1: till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games.
0: The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters, using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is... The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers.
1: There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
0: For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. In the summer of 1996, Maria was still working for Epstein and painting in her free time when she was given a big opportunity to provide some artwork for a feature film. She couldn't work for Epstein and complete her art, so she told Epstein she was quitting.
1: I had told him that I got this job, and I was really honored. It was really exciting for me, and I thought, man, I'm going to pour my heart out into these paintings. So I quit, and I said, Jeffrey, I'm turning in my notice. I'll be here another two weeks. I was being polite, and he said, no, 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 no. I'm so sorry you're unhappy with this. Oh, my gosh. I want you to be happy, Maria.
0: That's when she says Epstein insisted that she go to Ohio to paint. That's where Epstein had a home he acquired in 1992— And Maria says that Epstein told her it was situated on the massive estate of his client, Les Wexner.
1: Epstein said, great, you could do the paintings at Les Wexner's.
0: A statement from a spokesperson for Les Wexner says that the home was not on land owned by the Wexner's. And property records show that the home sits adjacent to Wexner's estate. Maria wasn't sold on the idea, but she says that Epstein insisted saying it would be a great place for her to work.
1: Eh, Ohio, are you kidding me? Uh, I had a boyfriend in New York. I didn't want to leave and go to Ohio. They said, listen, you'll have more light there, tons of space, right? We'll pay for your supplies.
0: So Maria agrees to go and arrives at Epstein's home in New Albany, Ohio, an affluent suburb of Columbus. The home sits on acres of land, tucked away from the main roads, just to the north of Les Wexner's sprawling estate and 30-room mansion.
1: And as soon as we get there, you know, we pull in and there's this beautiful estate. We're driving forever on it. We pass the stables that are being built in this mansion.
0: Wexner's estate is massive. His home sits in the center of 360 acres of land with stables and evergreen hedgerows. And a little more than a third of a mile away sits the 10,000-square-foot house then-owned by Jeffrey Epstein.
1: And we get around to the front to this neoclassical tacky home, right? Tacky because it's, again, like, not old but trying to be old. And these huge columns and just kind of over the top.
0: Maria says when she arrives, she's greeted by a member of Wexner's security. She says he tells her that if she needs anything to contact him or Abigail Wexner, Les Wexner's wife. And Maria says he gave her a warning. There's armed security on the property, and it's patrolled by dogs.
1: So you can't go outside at all unless you get our permission.
0: In the two months that Maria stayed on the property, she says she never met Les or Abigail Wexner, but says she did speak on the phone with Abigail Wexner a few times.
1: When I first got to the property, Abigail did call me to thank me for coming to do this artist in residency. She said, we're huge supporters of the arts.
0: In a statement, a spokesperson for the Wexners said that until recent news coverage, both Leslie and Abigail Wexner had never heard of Maria, and the spokesperson added that they have never met Maria, never spoken with her, and adds that they never spoke about Maria to Epstein. Epstein's home would seem to provide the space that Maria needed to work. Maria says that Epstein told her she'd have more time to relax, that she'd be able to play tennis or golf in her free time, that she'd eat food from the nearby country clubs. But she says none of those things happened, and instead, she says she felt isolated and controlled. She says she often felt like she had to stay inside Epstein's home, even taking her runs for exercise indoors. And feeling like a prisoner, Maria says she got little work done. According to Maria's lawsuit, at one point, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell came to Ohio for a visit and stayed at the home with Maria. And it was during this visit that Maria says everything changed. It began when Epstein requested that Maria give him a foot massage. Maria was in her room when she says she was summoned by Maxwell.
1: Knock knock knock. It's Ghislaine Maxwell. She knocks on the door and she said, Maria, we need you for just a minute.
0: She says Maxwell was in a robe and that struck her as unusual.
1: It was like I knew something was up.
0: She walked down the hall to Epstein's room and there on the bed was Epstein lying in his socks and boxers.
1: And I knew, I just, I knew, I knew I was in trouble.
0: Maria says she felt uncomfortable. This was her boss. I've never
1: rubbed my boss's feet. So I'm like, I don't think I'm very good at this. And he goes, sit right here. And it was actually over here. Sit so right here. And I thought, oh, God.
0: That's when, in her lawsuit, Maria says that Galen Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein proceeded to violently sexually assault her.
1: And I sat down, and Galen got on the other side of me, and they proceeded to um, touch me. And I, I don't remember the assault. I remember being in a lot of pain. I remember having some bruises. I don't remember everything they touched, but they didn't get my clothes off. They tried, and at one point I started to cry a little bit, and she grabbed my hand, and she goes, it's okay, it's okay, And she's, like, reassuring me and, you know, rubbing my face, and it was sickening to me. What's happening? I was in an absolute panic to the point where I was able to get myself up and get out of that room, and Ghislaine came after me, but I, I, I literally took these big pieces of furniture, and I pushed them against the doors, and I stayed up all night.
0: Terrified. Maria says she barricaded herself in her room and claims she called police for help, but to no avail. Maria is not sure which police agency she spoke with, and we've attempted to find out if there are any records of Maria's call. The New Albany Police Department says it doesn't retain 911 records going back to the 1990s, and attempts to find records at other local departments were unsuccessful. Maria stayed in her room all night, and by the next day when she emerged, she says Epstein and Maxwell were gone. They'd already left to return to New York, and it was later in the day that she says she got a call from Epstein.
1: He said, Maria, I will do whatever you want. I am so sorry. What can I give you? I will give you any amount of money. He offered to do anything. The man would have given me millions of dollars, and I hung up on him. Are you kidding me? What is this? Why would you touch me like that? I'm your employee. There was no amount of money. Nothing. No, we weren't going to talk.
0: Maria knew she needed to leave. She says she was worried about her safety, but says in her lawsuit that one of Wexner's security guards stood in her way and that she was held on the property for several hours against her will.
2: When Maria called me, she was crying and she was very upset, obviously very upset from what had
0: happened to her. Her mother, Janice Swain, remembers getting a frantic phone call from Maria.
2: I was actually in Germany at the time. Maria called me to tell me that she was at the Wexner estate and that something had happened with Gillian and Jeffrey. Because I was out of the country, I couldn't even imagine how I could help her. So she reached out to her father and he he did come to the estate.
0: Maria's lawsuit says she was finally allowed to leave after her father arrived at the property. He'd driven from his home in Kentucky to Ohio to get her. In a statement to ABC News, a Wexner spokesperson said that Maria's allegations of being held on the property against her will are, quote, contrary to the professional obligations of the security team. After leaving the property, Maria says she wanted nothing to do with Epstein or Maxwell, but says she'd soon find out that being free of them would not be so easy. Upon returning to New York, Maria claims in court documents that she would receive threatening phone calls from Maxwell on behalf of Epstein.
1: I get a call from Ghislaine Maxwell telling me that all of my art is going to be burned. It has been burned. Anything I ever make will be burned. My home will burn. I will die. And she would say it like, um, be careful when you walk around. I know you like to go running on the West Side Highway, so just watch over your back because you know what? You can get killed a lot of ways on the West Side Highway.
0: We attempted to reach Galen Maxwell as part of our reporting for this story, but her lawyers did not respond to requests for comment. Despite the threats, Maria decided she would go to the police.
1: And I was dreading it, because how do you tell someone, I was living on this estate, couldn't go outside for three months, but I stayed there. You know, how do you tell people this? It's so creepy and bizarre. And who's going to believe me?
0: On August 29th, 1996, at the 6th Precinct of the New York City Police Department, just one year after meeting Jeffrey Epstein, Maria filed the earliest known police report against him. Much of the report is redacted, but it mentions that Maria was afraid that Epstein would burn her paintings and send her Polaroids of the ashes. It also says that Epstein had keys to her apartment.
1: They weren't dismissive, but they did laugh a little bit. They thought it was kind of a funny story. And they said, oh, come on, you know. And they said, you know what? They realized we can't handle this. We can file a report for you about art theft or whatever you want.
0: Maria's lawsuit says she was told by the NYPD that they couldn't do anything about the alleged sexual assault in Ohio and that they referred her to the FBI. So Maria says she called the FBI later that very day.
1: I gave them everything they needed to know. The very people I was reporting, very powerful.
0: But then she says nothing happened.
1: Well, I think
2: no one listening was frustrating for her.
0: We asked the FBI if they had any record of Maria's 1996 report. But as a matter of policy, the FBI declined to comment, and it wouldn't confirm or deny whether any record exists. Maria tells us it took one evening for the course of her life to change. She'd gone from living her dream as an artist in New York, pulling in $20,000 commissions to someone who wouldn't even pick up a brush.
2: She was threatened and she was afraid. Uh, She suddenly didn't want to live in New York anymore. She changed her name a couple of times uh, just because she was afraid. She was more reclusive, I think.
0: Back at her home, as we're sitting in her art studio, she told our lead reporter, James Hill, that it's taken her a long time to finally be able to talk about what happened to her.
1: And so I stopped painting from that time period of like the early 2000s until a year ago, and really I didn't. I was just kind of going through the motions of life. So not painting for 20 years was uh, was very. It caused me to have depression, and um, it was very painful. I'm trying not to cry. So, yeah, it was just very painful to not be able to paint and to not do the one thing that I was here to do. And I feel like I have a lot of catching up to do because, you know, it's been so long. So I have a great deal of work that I need to accomplish, and I feel a lot of pressure because of it.
0: So you know. say if somebody says, why Why did you stop? Why did you feel like you had to stop? Um,
1: I actually stopped because I felt like my art had been violated.
0: Maria shows us some photographs from before she went to Ohio. What else do you have? Okay,
1: so here I have, uh, this is when I went to Eric Fischel's workshop in New Mexico, and we all went to Taos to his ranch on that trip. And this is me sitting in the studio talking to Eric.
0: And uh, your sunglasses on. Yeah,
1: it was Santa Fe. (laughs) Very 90s.
0: James Hill asks Maria if she ever found out What happened to the painting that she sold Epstein back in 1995? Where is the original now? Yeah,
1: I don't know. I guess I don't know if they burned it. As far as I know, Jeffrey had it. It's in the estate.
0: Looking back all these years later, Maria says she thinks she knows what drew Epstein to her painting of the girl on the couch with the man in the doorway, and what drew him to her in the first place.
1: So I was playing with these ideas of voyeurism, and that's disturbing to me, because I think that's obviously what compelled him. He saw in this um, a vulnerable woman and a man in his boxers walking through a doorway getting ready to take advantage of that woman. That's what I think he saw. That's not what it was about.
0: Only recently has Maria started painting again, dedicating her work to other women like her, survivors of Jeffrey Epstein. And today, when she talks about them, she cannot hold back her emotions.
1: When I look at those other girls... (laughs) They were ruined too, and I could see it. We're all broken. I spotted in them, and it kills me.
0: But the thing she can't get over, the thing that still haunts her, is that what could have been the first alarm about Epstein instead became the first of many times he appears to slip through the cracks. As she puts it, I tried to warn you.
1: If the authorities had heeded my report and done something about it, none of these women would have been harmed.
0: Next time on Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein had a way of dodging trouble, and some say he may have been doing it for most of his adult life.
1: If you look at Epstein's life, it feels a little bit like a rags-to-riches story, but there's
3: still a lot missing from it. There's a lot of mystery. For some reason, I was told that he was like a brain surgeon.
0: He said, well, you know, I made all my money uh, inventing a non-invasive liposuction machine. Next week, we look at Epstein's climb from a middle-class Brooklyn boy into the world's top 1% and those who say there were victims left in the wake.
2: Nobody really knew who he was, but yet he had all of these rich and
0: powerful friends. He was a financial predator, and he was also a sexual predator. He was connected. He let people know how connected he was and how powerful he was. I call him a criminal mastermind. Truth and Lies, Jeffrey Epstein, is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio, written and hosted by me, Mark Remillard, produced and edited by Kate McAuliffe. Reporting for this podcast is led by senior producer James Hill. Additional reporting by producers Pete Madden, Caitlin Fulmer, and Chris Francescani. Associate producer is Emily Rachowski. Additional production assistance by Hallie Frager, Prithvi Kaye, Kate Holland, and Caroline Highland. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Terry Lickstein, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Stacia Deshishku, and Sandy Evans. Cindy Galley is our Chief of Investigative Projects, and Chris Vlasto is our Senior Executive Producer.